The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined uh, by my colleague Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Lande Adjose. Hello. I got it right. Okay, I got it right. You did. Uh, and uh, she is on the chair of the Governor's Council on Post-Secondary Education, and she is also the senior advisor to Governor Newsom on post-secondary matters. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Happy to be with you. I got a zillion questions, but the first one is about the pandemic what, um, what are you seeing in terms of the pandemic's impact on higher education? What I hear is from my interns uh, who some have open classes, some don't, most don't actually. The class is not reopened yet, but there may be a partial move to that. What, what are you saying? Well, you know, the pandemic, you know, the last 14 months have really been incredibly difficult, I think, for, for higher education, especially for students. Um, and I think one of the uh, immediate impacts we saw was at, you know, almost every college in the in the state really pivoted to to online, and that was really an amazing feat. You know, higher ed gets a lot of uh, criticism for not moving very quickly, so people were very impressed that we were able to get everyone online. But what we saw is that there a lot of the inequities that we have for students um, were exacerbated by the pandemic. So students who um, have less resources did not have the computing equipment that they needed. They did not have the sufficient bandwidth that they needed. Um, so we, we have seen a slide in terms of enrollments at some of our institutions um, that is coupled with uh, actually changes in um, standardized testing has really changed the entire admissions season for higher education for our four-year institutions. Um, A lot of schools remain in distance learning currently. Uh, Some are meeting face-to-face or in a hybrid format, Uh, but we're really casting our eyes towards the fall where we expect everyone to to reopen uh, face-to-face if possible. A few institutions will be in hybrid mode. Are you seeing anything with students uh, that we're seeing in the outer world with people who have been so so accustomed to working from home and liking it, basically, they'd rather do that than go back into the classroom. Is there any, you know, is there any uh, quantitative difference between the two or should they be in the classroom like we did traditionally when I was a student going to class was part of the rigor of the day? What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's not a blanket um approach. There are certain, I think one of the things we've learned during the pandemic is there are certain courses that actually lend themselves to this distance learning model. A lot of the big lecture classes, for example, you'll have students say, I actually prefer doing that in this asynchronous distance learning model. I can watch the video. I can rewind if I don't understand what the professor says. I can take better notes. And then I can really um, use my discussion groups or smaller formats to really go deep into that material. So that's, I think, really interesting. There are the courses, of course, your laboratory courses that are impossible to do in this format. So when I think about what we're going to, I do think we're going to experience some fundamental changes in how we deliver, if you will, education. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think it's going to be exactly like what we left, nor do I think it's going to be exactly like what we're currently living through now. Do you think the interaction uh, between student and instructor can be replicated in a meaningful way online. I, I, I just think of being in a classroom and 
raising my hand or calling out when I shouldn't have, you know, hey, that's wrong. Why don't we do this? That kind of thing. But that personal interaction is kind of a big thing. I think the personal interaction is a big thing. Sorry about that. Yes, I do think that that um, that has shifted a lot. And students, I think, uh, in this digital, you know, Zoom world are less likely to raise their hand. They're more likely to have their cameras off. You know, you, know, you, you never let a student be in class with uh, their sunglasses on, for example. So it's a little <laughs> odd to, uh, to have a class where students have their cameras off. But in deference to the fact that we all have very different living situations, sometimes that's necessary. Sure. Yeah. It's difficult for instructors to teach to a bunch of black boxes where there's no one giving any feedback. So it's, it's on both sides of the coin, it's, it's uh, posed a challenge. So I do think that um, the quality can suffer, but it can also be enhanced. It really depends on the type of course and, um, and what other uh, learning tools accompany that course besides just the classroom experience itself. I was thinking when I uh, was in college, I learned so much more from the other students. I mean, I obviously learned from my professors, but there were so many instances where my interactions with students ended up being as important in seeing what they were doing. And I really wonder how that is, uh, how that interaction has either you know changed or just disappeared on in the distance learning model. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really interesting um, insight. And I think that that, um, my guess is that that has probably suffered. But I would say that's also uh, particular to, in many instances, the four-year college experience. And so many of our California students aren't in four-year institutions. And so part of what we're trying to make sense of, I think the instructors and the institutions are trying to make sense of is, How do we think about customizing um, how we deliver education, how we engage students in learning based on where they are, based on the kind of courses they're taking, based on um, all of those things? I think, you know, for residential institutions, you know, students move to college for a particular type of experience. So there's no doubt in my mind that those residential institutions have really struggled in many ways. And those students have struggled because they were Um, going to that school for a very particular type of of college experience that they aren't able to replicate in this Zoom format. You know, I was looking at some uh, numbers, and they may be a couple years old, but um, uh, the cost of going to school, now this is just UC Berkeley, which is sort of a a catch-all for all the good things and all the problems everywhere. It seems to come out of Berkeley, but uh, (laughs) great school, great research institution, obviously. Um, but tuition, yearly tuition for an in-state student, and I think this 2019, uh, 2019, 2020, was about 14000 a year. Uh, their fees, their book costs, obviously on top of that. For an out-of-state student, about $42,000 a year for an out-of-state student to go there, uh, which seems just enormous to me now. Just enormous. And then a four, for the four years at Berkeley, and that includes fees, books, everything, hundred almost 160000 almost 40000 a year. Uh, much of that, I believe, at least at UC Berkeley, is covered by grants and, and the ability to provide students with funding otherwise they wouldn't have. But the dollars here are just enormous to me. Is there any way, I know you've got a background too of dealing with tuition issues and this is an accountability. This is something that you've been involved with for a long time. How do we deal with tuition like that? Or their parents, how do they deal with it? 
Well, let me just tell you, um, I am actually one of those parents. I have a, a high school senior who went through this crazy year and uh, looking at, at those numbers. And there's no doubt in my mind that the affordability challenges that students and families face um, have an enormous impact on not just where they go, but what they choose to study uh-huh. and what their college experience is. So, um, you know, it used to be back in the olden days when I went to college, um, you know, you went to become a better person and to learn. And yeah, you were going to use all that knowledge, but you didn't feel the pressure to go into college knowing what your major was going to be. College was about having the opportunity to explore, to determine what your major would be. And when you graduated, you might do something related to your major, but you might do something completely different. Uh For the most part, that's not the case anymore. And I think as college affordability has become a much more dire um, issue for students, they feel enormous pressure to be clear about what they want to do and how they're going to get there right up front. Um, One of the things that has uh, accompanied this is that you see that the college experience now, and it's, it's a positive shift, I think, is very much integrated when you go to visit all these colleges, people talk about the number of internships that their students do while they're in college. I remember a few students doing internships when I was in college, but not everyone. Now, I would say almost all students in our four-year institutions, at least, do internships, Many do several internships because that is how they are then competitive when they graduate because they are looking oftentimes at loans that are stratospheric. And so in my mind, uh, UC Berkeley actually, and the UC system, it's one of the greatest deals in the nation. $14,000 for tuition is fantastic. I think the $40,000 for out-of-state students is actually all in inclusive of I'm not sure. I think it's all in inclusive of room and board, but I, I could be mistaken around that. Um, the state subsidizes that $14,000 for, for college students, for, um, for the UCs and for the CSUs. And certainly we pay quite a bit for the community colleges as well. Um, but when you look at some of our private institutions, you're looking at tuitions in the 50, 60, $70,000 range. It's yeah, really extraordinary. At Harvard was 51,000 uh, at Harvard. And that was exclusive of other, you know. Right. That's that. That doesn't include the non-tuition costs. The other thing that's very interesting is we tend to focus a lot on tuition. But actually, if you look at data for the last 10, 15 years, what you'll see in the public institutions in California is that tuition has been relatively flat. What has increased is the cost of living. All those non-tuition costs are going up and up and up. We know housing. That's a big part of that non-tuition cost housing, transportation, childcare, um, health insurance, all of those things that students still have to be on the hook for. Those are the costs that are increasing. Um, Books, books, uh, I think the the governor said earlier this year, books were a racket. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, it's it's really hard for students. And so we're really taking a, a serious look in the administration at what we can do to think about, um, addressing the issue of affordability at all of our institutions, not just the four years, but at all of our institutions. And, um, you know, there's some proposals certainly moving through the legislature. Uh, our colleagues in the legislature are very concerned about that as well. So, uh, in yes, it seems like a lot of money compared to a lot of other states. California is one of the best bargains in the nation. Mm-hmm. But affordability has a huge impact, not just on your pocketbook, but on how you approach your entire college experience. 
is there any, uh, do you ever get any feedback from students uh, who would like to have a professor teaching a class as opposed to say a graduate student? I hear this from our folks we know who went to Berkeley uh, almost all the way through. They, they rarely had a full professor and assistant professor dealing with the class as much as they had with other folks, except in large lecture halls. Is there you get any sense about that? It applies, I think, mostly to research institutions as opposed to others. Yeah, the research universities. I haven't had a lot of feedback from students about that. Uh-huh. They're much more concerned with uh, cost. They're very, very concerned with basic needs. Um, you know, a lot of students come to college, they are food insecure, they're housing insecure. Um, They're sleeping in cars and sleeping in libraries and going to food pantries. Um, That was, you know, unconscionable and unheard of when I was in college that a student wouldn't just live in the dorm and go to the dining hall. But uh, students are looking for other ways to uh, utilize their resources well. And so if it comes to, well, I want to enroll and buy my books, but I don't have enough money for housing, maybe I'll couch surf for three months or four months or live in my car for a month or to go to go to the food pantry you know those are the kinds of choices that students are having to make and those are really tough choices this is a related topic but uh you know i know some adjunct professors and they the use of adjunct professors as i understand it has really expanded over the last 10-15 years and what they get paid is very, very minimal. And obviously, if you're a, a tenured professor, you do quite well and you have a very comfortable standard of living, as you should. But then you look at what adjuncts get paid and it's astonishingly low. Yeah. Uh, and it seems that that's going to be an issue going forward. Uh, you know, if we continue to have more and more uh, adjuncts, less and less tenured professors, is that something you could speak to? Is there any plan there to address that? Yeah, that's a great um, insight. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, we have uh, increased our reliance on adjunct professors enormously over the last 20 years. Um, And it is for many of those adjunct professors, that is a second job or a third job. Um, It's oftentimes not their only, only gig. Um, And I think we, you know, it's very, the old model where everyone was a professor, a full professor and a tenured professor, that is a very expensive model. Um, And so adjunct professors, uh, you know, uh, have offered, I think, some flexibility to the institutions, but it doesn't actually work well, I think, for those professors who are then trying to string together two and three jobs. So I think it's an issue that we have to continue to really look at. Um, It's an issue that's, you know, it's an issue in California. It's it's an issue nationwide uh, for higher education. And so it's really, a structural question that higher education needs to think about in terms of how do we actually want to think about who are the instructors that teach our institutions and what are we willing to do and to fundamentally change um, to to reduce that adjunct professor because it's not going to be the model where all of those folks could just become full tenured professors or be on the tenure track that would be unaffordable for the institutions. Um, so it would be it, it, that's going to have to be a very long conversation between faculty and administrators about what does a new model look like? Mm-hmm. That's a tough question. You know, uh, a few years ago in place, it always seemed to me to be a great policy, but was a policy by which community college students 
had a easier path to the UC system or the CSU system, but, but could go from the community college, a two-year school, complete that, and then have a way in, a bit of an easier way in than they might otherwise have. It just seemed like a great idea to me. And I know so many students who went through community college and they have fond memories of that. Does that still hold true? Are you able, is it easier to get to the UC or CSU system from community college? Is there a path forward? Yeah, that's a, a great, um, great question. It is, there's definitely a path. Um, whether or not it's an easier path, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as you know, the UCs um, have become incredibly competitive. Um, this past year, UC, uh, UCLA had, I think, 140,000 applications. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and... I don't know. The, the The class is certainly fewer than ten thousand students, but you know. So it, it's. I mean, when you think about just how competitive the UC has become, um, it's really tough. So, um, and when your class is that competitive, when you can fill your class two and three times over with qualified students, um, the question is, how many transfer spots are there by the time students are ready to transfer in? Um, I think that we can do a much better job. We have made a promise to students that we have this pathway. Um, And back in, I think it was 2012 or so, I'm not sure about the date, but the associate's degree for transfer was was, uh, enacted. And what that did was not just say students have a pathway, but said, if you go to a community college and you complete these courses, Um, It then gives you status in your next institution within a particular major, right? So we're trying to strengthen some of those pathways. Um, We actually came out with a report. And when I say we, uh, the Governor's Council for Post-Secondary Education and I um, called together a task force to look at how we would recover from the pandemic with greater equity. And we pulled together that task force. The task force released a report in February that's thinking about some of these questions. Uh, Part of the question is, is there a way to think about dual admission um, whereby a student in high school can apply to their four-year institution, but actually complete courses that they haven't been able to complete in high school at at their local community college, but already be admitted and already take advantage of some of the resources of that four-year system. Uh, counseling resources, the library, the gym, um, because I think for so many of our California students, you know, 50% of them, their uh, institutions, their high schools don't offer what we call A through G courses, which is the requisite set of courses you need to take to attend a UC. Well, if your high school doesn't offer the A through G courses, how could you possibly even aspire to go to, to a UC? So we're trying to think about how do we structurally and systemically strengthen those pathways so that the UC and the CSU really do become and continue to, uh, to remain you know, accessible to everyone and all Californians. But the truth is we have just a huge capacity issue. We've done a much better job in K-12 of improving qualifications for, for four-year institutions, and we have many fewer spots um, than we have qualified students. And because it's a world-class system, both the UC and the CSU, there are kids from all over the nation and all over the world who want to attend. So how do we reconcile all those things, particularly, as you mentioned, when um, the amount of money that a UC or a CSU is going to get for that out of 
state student or that out of the country student is much greater than what they're going to get for um, for a California resident. We put some caps on that to make sure that we're preserving enough spots or as many spots as we can for California students. But again, we could uh, fill those classes, you know, several times over with very qualified Californians. What, what do you look for? You've touched on this a bit, and, but I know you're involved in admissions. I think at Vassar at one point, you're doing admissions. And so what does it, I've always wondered about this. What does an admissions person at a university, what is that person looking for in an applicant? I'm envisioning all these people applying to the UC system, for example. I got 3.95 or better averages in high school, some 4.0, and I guess better than 4.0. Uh, you've got this wide talented pool, how do you pick, how do you know who's going to be doing the best, could make the best, the most use out of a college education? What, what are the factors that go in here? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think I mentioned my, my son is a high school senior. We've just gone through this admissions process. Um, he was talking to a friend and his friend, uh, they were all three of them applied to, to UCLA. Uh, his friend's girlfriend got in, my son and his uh, best friend buddy did not. And I said to his buddy, I'm like, what in the world does your girlfriend have that, you know, you guys don't have, you guys are terrific. How'd you not get in? He says, ah, she flies a plane. So, um, <laughs> which just gives you a sense of just how remarkable um, some of these, these students are. When I was an admission officer, we weren't looking for kids who flew planes. Um, we were looking for kids who would stretch themselves who could write essays that demonstrated their curiosity, who, um, who had some interests outside of the classroom um, that really would help us to think this person's gonna contribute to our, our community. I would imagine that when you look at uh, college admissions, they're still looking for those things, but the ante has been upped so much um, that, you know, you really have to feel like you can fly a plane and you've cured cancer. And, you, you know, there are a lot of extraordinary things that some of these young people do. And again, it's not to say that there aren't other, you know, significantly qualified students who could be in these institutions. There's not quite enough space for all of the students who are, who are qualified. Does the SAT still play? That was the most traumatic thing for me applying to college was an SAT, but I understand now, um, it's being phased out or will be. Well, yeah, the SAT has traditionally played a significant role. This is the first year where, you know, many schools were SAT optional in part because it was very difficult to sit for an SAT during the pandemic. Um, as it turned out, there was a lawsuit and the UC was prohibited from looking at the SAT. Um, and so that uh, really, I think um, shifted, well, you know, it, UC has something that they call comprehensive review so that they look at a range of factors. The SAT could not be one of those factors. So I would imagine, and I don't know for, for, for certain, but I would imagine that they weighted some elements differently than they have in the past. Um, I do think that one thing that, the, that eliminating uh, the requirement for an SAT did is that students who otherwise thought, oh, my scores are terrible, I would never get into this institution, suddenly decide I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my shot, right? And so when you think about that 142,000 or 140,000 students that applied to UCLA, some of that is because students thought, no one's looking at my SAT, suddenly that doesn't matter. Maybe I could get into this school. I actually think on balance, that's a good thing um, that, that students who otherwise would not aspire 
to a school like a, a, a UC or another competitive four-year institution suddenly feel like, you know what, maybe I can, and that we are going to take many more of those students. Because by and large, those students are, are they tend to be low-income students, they tend to be students of color, they don't have the money to do test prep and all of these other things that, you know, our more well-off students have the ability to do to make them competitive in that old system. So I actually think that, um, you know, the SAT and eliminating that has had, has done some good. It's also made the process much more unpredictable and in some ways a little bit more opaque. And I think over time, um, it will be incumbent upon our institutions to demonstrate how they're making decisions in light of the fact that the SAT perhaps is not being weighed. Um, but I think that you know we're in the midst of a big change and the question becomes, will people be using the SAT in four years? Are we are standardized tests on their way out? Are we gonna really go to things like teacher recommendations and uh, the quality of essays and the rigor of a student's uh, transcript in terms of if you're taking the most rigorous courses offered by your high school, not all APs, but by your high school, is, are those the things that we're gonna use as criteria to demonstrate that students have that curiosity, that they're interested in being in college, that they're capable um, and, and that they deserve an opportunity. You know, your comment about the SATs and, and this year, how they've not really played a role. Uh, I'm an unusual student in that I've never taken an SAT. I went to a four-year college, but uh, I did not take the traditional path. I went, you know, I did a couple of years <laughs> spread out over probably 10 years at uh, community college. And then the reason I really decided to apply for UC is because of my peers. I had several friends who'd gone to UC Davis. They had a wonderful experience. I loved what they were telling me about. And I said, hey, that's what I want to do. And luckily for us at Sac City Community College, there's a program that if you complete a certain course load, you are guaranteed a slot at UC Davis. And it was a wonderful program because then there's no guesswork. And so I managed to do all that and then move over to the UC, uh, you know, went to UC Davis, but I've, I've never taken an SAT because as much as I wanted to go to college, no one in my family had gone to four-year college. I had no idea how that even worked. So, uh, so I do think you're right that there's people probably who are seeing this and saying, hey, well, you know, I, I didn't do the SAT, but that's fine. I'm still, I have a shot. And so it's an interesting, you know, it will be interesting to see the differences of the people that are applying this year. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a good point. And one of the thing that, things that I am really focused on is we have so many Californians who don't have what we call college knowledge in their home. And those kids deserve to go to college too. Just because you don't have a parent or someone who can tell you what the pathway is and you got to take the SAT and you should take the PSAT beforehand so that you can be ready for the SAT and you should do this during your summers and you should take those courses. There are so many students who don't have that knowledge oh, yeah. in their home or at their fingertips. And it's incumbent upon us as a state, given our values around equity, um, to figure out how to scaffold that platform for those students too, right? And so part of what we are looking at, again, going back to this report, we have something, one of our recommendations is, can we develop a, a chat bot that would actually help students figure out and share with them information that would help them on their journey to get to a college degree? So that there was someone, even if it's like, you know, Joe, the chatbot saying, hey, have you registered for your SAT or have you completed your FAFSA? It's due in a week. Or have you talked to your counselor about, you know, X, Y and Z? 
that having those prompts along the way and being able to marshal technology and take advantage of technology to do that in a way that's equitable for everyone could fundamentally change the, the opportunities of so many students in this state. And those are things that we have the capacity to do as a state. We have the ability to do as the state. So those are some of the recommendations that came out of our report because we have to be able to make sure that we're providing opportunity and make the opportunity real, not just say anyone can apply, but there are steps that you need to get there. And I think that we can make sure that we're creating the, the pathway for students to go through those steps so that they can really live into those opportunities. Isn't there any way we can get uh, Tim to take that SAT retroactively? I think that would be that would be helpful for the rest of us. I, think. I would love to see it. <laughs> now you've got the challenge. I'll have to look. What's what you have to take before you go to law school? Is it the LSAT? I could maybe take that. You can take the LSAT. You can take the MCAT and you can go off to med school. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, who actually went to medical school quite late in life. He just, he'd worked in a warehouse. He was a very smart guy. And uh, he was in the hospital for a severe medical uh, procedure. And in talking to the doctors, one of the doctors said, you know, you'd make a great doctor. Have you ever thought about it? And he said, no, I work in a warehouse. And he sat on that and sat on that and went went back to college and, and ended up and he's a doctor who works at Kaiser, has been at Kaiser, went to Harvard Medical School. So it can happen. Not to me. Wow. I love those stories. That's fantastic. That's yeah. Lundi, I just say thank you very much for joining us today. That was great. It was really, uh, really enlightening. I had a bunch of questions I wanted to ask about me going back to school as an older student, but that's for next time. We'll, we'll talk about that next time. Let's definitely talk about that next time. We've been focused a lot on adult students as well. Uh, Lande, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today for the chat. And now uh, Tim and I will get into our weekly uh, fixture here, who had the worst week in California politics. Uh, there were some choices on this one, but we came up with John Cox, recall candidate uh, for governor. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think Mr. Cox did not have a great week uh, bringing out his bear, which did get more attention than probably anything else he's done so yeah. far in this campaign. But I'm not sure that it really got the attention he wanted. And certainly he himself lamented the fact that all anyone wanted to talk about was the bear. And uh, I think, you know, when you turn your campaign into a circus and someone wants to talk about the clowns, that's how it's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I think uh, whether or not he should have had the bear in the first place and he shouldn't have uh, is obviously a publicity stunt that got all kinds of publicity I call it publicity, not news coverage. It got a lot of publicity in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CBS, San Francisco, various TV stations, YouTube. Uh, it got more, more coverage than he did, and he was ignored. On the kickoff of his campaign, he was ignored, and the week following, he's complaining about uh, the bear gets all the coverage and he didn't get any, and, or very little. You know, he got beat by Davis, excuse me, by uh, Newsom by 24 points in 2018 when he ran for governor the first time. And that to me is a landslide or at least a near landslide. You know, I would Lathana's say- thumb is 25 say, points. He missed it by one point. In, uh, uh, I would say this is a, in this environment, that's a landslide because we're, we're more closely divided than that. Yeah. I think if 25 points is a you know landslide. He, he was endorsed by Newt Gingrich, endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, is uh, anti-abortion. Uh, pro-death penalty. I mean, on and on and on. He's in, with issues that are largely out of step with most California voters. So he's got a hard slog coming in. Uh, 
And then the bear stunt. Uh, it just doesn't seem like he had a very good week. I will be interested to see if he can recoup. Uh, we'll see. He might get up to 23-point loss. He'd be doing great. <laughs> well, so. now remember, the dynamics of the recall are a lot different. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's going he's gonna to win it. Right now, it looks like he has major problems, and his campaign kickoff didn't help any. Uh, so we'll see what happens now. Yeah, and I think I think the person who actually had, uh, well, also arguably did not have a great week was Caitlyn Jenner uh, with her Sean Hannity interview, and yeah. she's getting hammered for uh, for the comment about her neighbor was cleaning out his hangar and moving out of state because he was tired of of seeing homeless people, which came across as pretty tone deaf, which is I think an accurate reading of of that. Um, so. In a sense, Caitlyn Jenner actually did pretty good because John Cox and his bear kind of took some of the focus off of that. So, yes. yeah, you know. it's interesting too that the uh, thus far a serious candidate uh, seems to be Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego, but he's getting almost no attention at all. He's not now, not lately. Uh, that of course may change, and I don't know what kind of chances he has anyway, given a record in San Diego. It's, you know, made him vulnerable to. Uh, quite a bit of criticism down there, but but at least he's a candidate who's a serious candidate. Oh, something right now, it's hard to say about Cox. Maybe Gen- maybe Jenner, you know, soon, but not Cox. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. And uh, so, any you know, so we're a week out. Any guesses on who's who's heading toward having the worst week uh, next week? Anybody anybody in your uh, sights? I don't even want to predict. You know, it changes every day. It seems like. Um, Nope, I don't have a guess yet. Usually, I'm happy to give uninformed guesses, but I think I'll hang loose this time. Yeah, I, I have nobody nobody that seems to be teeing up a terrible week, so yeah. we shall see. Although, you know, it could be you. If you're out there, you're listening, you know, you could have a really terrible week. Maybe you'll be the star of, of next week's podcast. Yeah, and if you're listening to our podcast, you may have a terrible week. We'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll be out there. So, hey, thanks, John. Thank you, Tim. Talk to you soon. All right, and uh, we'll talk to everyone out there uh, next week. Okay, all The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.